But Isaiah is a work that was written uh, into a time when uh, Israel wasn't getting things right, when Israel was struggling to do things the way God <clears throat> had called them to live. And it's a very, it's a dark reading. Uh, I just want to, just to give you an example, I don't have a slide for this, but this is how Isaiah opens, by the way. Uh, just see if you can find the Christmas joy in these texts. Uh, verse 1 is standard vision of Isaiah, son of so-and-so, so-and-so. And here comes the first prophetic utterance in, in Isaiah. Uh, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. The Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord and they have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Merry Christmas, everybody. <laughs> that's, some, that's some powerful Bob Dylan, like, that's really coming at you with, okay, I need to pay attention to what is being said. Now, all of chapters 1 through 11, pretty much that vibe. You'll be exhausted, you'll feel guilty, you'll wonder what the heck is going on as you read. But chapter 12 forms this, like, break, this transition and by the time we get to chapter 12, Israel, and if you're reading it, you as well, need some sort of glimmer of hope, some light in the darkness. Because all of chapters 1 through 11 is about an impending exile. The Assyrians are coming. It'll switch over to the Babylonians and then the Persians. I mean, Isaiah covers a big swath of history for Israel. But by the time we get to 12, we need this like, can I get, can I get a little Jesus as my friend? some light in the darkness, and the writer gives it in the form of this psalm. Not all psalms are in the book of Psalms, but they are throughout the Bible. And so chapter 12, verses 1 through 6, I want to read this, pray, and then we'll break down just a couple of things. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously and let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day, this morning, that we can come together as a church family in this space to sing songs about your grace and your mercy, uh, to be together uh, as a means of reminding each other of uh, the story of your grace and mercy in our lives. And I pray as we look at this ancient text for just a few minutes, 
that you speak to us. And it's in your name we pray, and everyone said? So this is a psalm of hope. And that hope is in the mercy and the strength of God's, uh, the word the writer here uses is salvation. Salvation. And verse 3 for me is the, is the big verse in this, where the writer says, With joy you will draw from the wells of salvation. Now, if one of you doesn't go out and start a band and name it the Wells of Salvation. But this is where I want us to sit for a minute. We're going to come back to it. I just want to put it out there because all of this will come back to this middle part of the psalm. With joy, you will draw from the wells of salvation. We'll come back to that. Now, the context of this psalm is exile. In exile, if you're unfamiliar with exile, it's a hard road. For definition purposes, exile is the experience uh, of being where you are currently, your city, the job you have, the relationships you're in, the financial standing you're in, whatever the case is, uh, of being where you are in the moment, not where you were, not where you're going to be, but where you are. And where you are is not by your choice. It could be by force. It could be just by circumstance that you're where you're at. It could be because of a job transfer is where you're at, is why you are where you're at. Uh, it could just be the result of a stream of decisions, just paper cut after paper cut, and all of a sudden you're just in this place where it feels like you're bleeding out. So to be in exile is to be away from what you identify as like home base for you, a place of safety and security, and you're living in some kind of strange land that wasn't of your choosing. And exile for the Israelites was extremely traumatic. It's not quite slavery, but you can't go home. And being dispersed around um, the known world at that time to make their living and to raise their families and to be who they were in new places that weren't Jerusalem, that weren't what they knew and were familiar with and loved, they just had to exist in new ways and new strange places under new and strange leadership. Exile is lonely. Uh, lamentations in our, I mean, just the name itself, doesn't that ring just wonderful for you? But it is a, it is a book of poetry in the Old Testament about this very issue of what it feels like uh, to be in exile. It's a lament, it's a long, this kind of dirge. It's a struggle. And exile can be very uncertain. It can also feel like a kind of hell. And so my question for you is, when was the last time that you felt like you were living in exile? Because I think we all go through that. We all have seasons where it's like, this isn't where I want to be. As things have happened. Things have changed. And I feel like I'm in a new place, but it's not a better place. It's a, it might be a worse place. It might just be a parallel place, but it's not where I want to be. Like sitting in a job that you don't really love. I know that's just none of you, I'm sure. Or the relationship that you're in feels uncertain. That can feel like an exile. Um, we have a lot of college students here. I mean, in a college away from home can feel lonely. You're on your fifth major. You're, you're just trying. You're trying to figure it out. I think one of the hardest things, at least in my experience with working with people all these years, is like when longtime friendships begin to fade. Man, it's tough. And that feels like a, 
a new land, a strange land. Or there's an addiction that just keeps hanging on, you know. All the guilt that comes with that and all the struggle, it's, it's an exile. Cities themselves are just filled with them. I mean, to meet the born and raised native is rare. I am one, by the way. Thank you. You've met me. But it's rare. People are transferred into different places for work. They come to seek a better life. Cities are just filled with people running from things. Uh, Or the job moved you here. Whatever the case is, it's an exile. It's not where you want to be. It's not where you know you'll be in 20 years. But right now, it's where you are. But exile, both in our own lives and in the story of Israel, it has a positive side to it. And the positive side to it is exile was and is the experience in which we learn to trust God in new ways. When we are extracted from what was safe and we're in a new place, we have to learn to trust God in new ways and to serve him in new ways. A lot of the prophet's message to Israel was like, okay, here's what you need to do. Here's how you live out your faith in this new world that you're in. The rise of the synagogue, the Jewish house of worship today, is a result of the exile. It's a result of not being able to go to the temple, mainly because it's destroyed, but not being able to get to the temple. How do we worship? So they develop new ways to worship the Lord. So it's a, it's a positive experience as well because we learn to trust. We learn to, going back to our text, to draw from the wells of salvation. Uh, for 15 years, <laughs> our church wandered around. I mean, for those of you who have been around long enough, for one or two or three or all five different locations to understand this. Uh, we did our best as a staff, truly, uh, to make every place we landed feel like home. Um, but everyone knew that what was beneath the surface was this kind of false floor, you know. And for those in the room who were in leadership during those days, you know, like, you know, like, any day now, we could, it could all burn to the ground. But we did our best to keep everyone else, like, unaware of that. Literally, when we had to move downtown, I had to explain to long-timers, no, again, we don't own this building. So we faked it really well. You know, we kept it together very well in so many ways that people didn't understand. Why are you selling the building? You trying to make money on an apartment complex? I mean, like all the things we heard. I'm like, we don't own it. So, that was quiet. There's no, there's no serious, I think it's funny. It's not a big deal. Uh, take a breath. Uh, I connected with another pastor on Instagram a few years ago, and it's, you know how it is. Uh, it's, it's one of those stories where this guy went to seminary with Joel, and uh, so through Joel, he found me. He's a rock and roll fan, so I, I want to I believe that's how he came into my life. Uh, <laughs> And uh, the very first thing he ever said to me was I posted a picture of like this old black crows who are back together, by the way, since the last announcement. Uh, uh, we'll see. I've got tickets for June, but we'll see if they make it. But uh, the, uh, I posted an old picture of them on the stage or whatever. And the very first thing this guy said to me was he messaged me through Instagram and he said, so much swagger. I mean, that was what he said. So uh, we connected immediately. And, um, but he leads a church in a small town in uh, Louisiana. And and in a weird way, I love uh, churches in small towns, and I love to get to know about them and their leaders. But anyway, he texted me the other day or messaged me through Instagram and said, hey, I'm about to be on the road for an hour. 
uh, can we talk? I finally want to talk to you. And so, uh, so I said, absolutely. And so he, he gave me a call and uh, it, was, it was very cool. I'd heard his voice before because he posted videos and whatever. And, uh, so I knew what he sounded like, but it was interesting. I mean, it doesn't happen all that often that you really actually connect with someone in this false world that we have. But uh, so we were talking and um, he shared with me how he follows our church account too, how he had been following us for a number of years. And he just had some questions for me, which I always am like, okay, listen, um, um, <laughs> I don't claim to be uh, whatever it is you want me to be. But he, no, he had some questions about us because this is exactly what he said to me. He's like, I'm following your church for a couple of years, and um, I follow churches for this reason, but I'd like to learn what it is that makes them tick. And you guys come across to me as like just a little bit off center. <laughs> and I said, exactly. So, uh, but he really just had these questions about us and our story and how we ended up in um, not just this building, but into the congregation that we are. And so I ended up just really sharing, as I've done many, many times before, just our story as a church, the story of never really being at home, the story of just really an exile congregation, always pining for something safer and more permanent, and, uh, and how we walked up to the edge of existence, if I may use a very passive-aggressive term, uh, several times in our history and how difficult that was. And I suppose that the church's story is also my story. I mean, I've been here 12, more than 12 years as your pastor, good grief, um, of the 15 years the church has been around. And so this story is my story too. It's my family's story. It's my kid's story. We all share it. And I'm a worrier. Uh, I take meds for anxiety. Uh, I struggle with those things. And during the years... Uh, that I've been here, there have been seasons, long seasons, long stretches where I've just struggled along with the church. You know, if the church is struggling, then I'm struggling. Um, there's this line back in the Exodus story where they escape slavery and they, they get to the wilderness, which is not a great destination. And the Israelites yell at Moses, and I just love the line, and I'll have it on the slide for you, but they tell Moses, you have brought us out here to die. And I felt like that many times as your leader, you know, like... You've brought us here to die uh, in the number of places that we've been. And um, man, I didn't want to be ACC's Moses. That was just my like, that was just my, my hope. But here's the thing, like, it, and you've, you've been through these things too, but at every stage, I had to learn new ways uh, to trust God. I just had to do that. I mean, just coming on staff here back in 2007, I was working at what would be considered at that time a fairly large mini mega church, and uh, it was fantastic. I didn't want to leave. I had two fully stacked youth rooms, like sound systems, bands. I could rent buses. Like I didn't want to come here. I mean, I did, but <laughs> they were like, "We'd love for you to come, but here's the situation." Uh, you know, we're holding checks for bills and the chairs don't belong to us and the stage is broken and uh, there's blood on the carpet, you know. Uh, and so there were long, just like, I don't want to do that. Not that I felt like, you know, super ultra safe. Ministry is never safe, but I felt way safer in my situation. I mean, just, and then coming here and just thinking about like, 
wow, I just really didn't think about how amazing parking spaces were, you know? Never thought about that. So I just had to learn new ways to trust God. And that's what exile does. We have to keep learning and relearning how to trust God. And so back to our verse, with joy you will draw from the wells of salvation. Such a fantastic line. And I love the image that salvation is a thing that we have to draw from. It's continuous. That's what a well is for. You keep going back to it because you need it. It's tedious. It's hard work. It's necessary. It's messy. But the image here is that salvation is not a thing that just happens to us, but it's something we have to continually engage with and draw from. It's not just this existential map for how we understand our relationship to God. It's something that we, day after day after day, dig our hands into and draw from. Isaiah 12, as I know you were keeping up in the Hebrew tenses, is written in the future tense. So it speaks of whatever redemption, it speaks of that redemption as an event that has not yet occurred. So it's a prayer. So this prayer, this song of mercy, is what all of us are invited to join into, to think about the coming salvation of the Lord, to learn the practice and behavior of futuring our faith, to not just, it's not just where we're at, but it's thinking about what God is bringing and what God will do in our lives and in our world. And again, I don't know who said this, but I do love this phrase that the church's job is to remember the future. We live in, we live in a world that's so, uh, it's always been this way, it's not new, but like it's just amplified with all the ways that we can hear about it. But the present is so dire, you know? It's so dire. And it's so, it, everything is spiraling, you know? And, uh, I mean, back to the Black Crows here as we close. <laughs> the number of, like, rant videos that have come out to say, oh, they're just getting back together. It's a money grab. And I, I don't comment on YouTube videos out of principle, but I just want to be like, so were you expecting them to just go back to what they normally do in their lives as architects to make their money? Or do you not realize that this is what they do for a living? Of course they're doing it for money. You know, it's just like have social media will bitch about something. You know, that is just the way it goes. That's the way it goes. But our job as Christians is to sit in a world that is so focused on the present and all the terrible things that are happening and to remind those around us that, you know, there's something better that's coming that we live in a way that casts the future into the present. Theologians understand the resurrection to be this in person. That the future of all things, a resurrected life and a new creation, moved itself into the middle of the history, historical story and gave a glimpse to those who happened to live in the middle of the first century what was coming. A glimpse that the future backed up into the present and said, this is what I hold for the world and all of creation. Now go live your lives in a way that reminds the world that all is not lost. Amen?
the earliest years of the Christian tradition, there was an understanding that the world in which they lived was very, very broken. And that hope wasn't to be in the present, but obviously in the future. And there was a belief that creation itself was to be renewed. The Apostle Paul wrote these words in Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Do not hear Paul say, I am denying the sufferings. He's just saying, because I've seen the future, what's happening to me and to our world at this present time is not even worth comparing with what's coming and what will be revealed to us. And so when we line up in just a moment to receive the bread and the juice, it is an act of both history and of hope. Because when we take the bread and we dip it in the juice, we are reminded of the history of Christ's death, his burial, the resurrection. And it's also this hope that we carry while we await his return. This is why churches do it week after week after week. We keep doing this until we don't have to do it anymore. I've been teaching a class on the spiritual practices before the service. Uh, we had our last week today, and we talked about the communion today. And I talked about how it's always after the sermon, because if the sermon tanks, you still get the gospel. You know, you still come down the aisle, and, you know, there's a percentage of sermons that do tank. And uh, you come down the aisle, and you're reminded of both the past of Christ's life and death and resurrection, but the hope also, the future of all things, that there will be a time when God reclaims his creation. And we are proclaiming the history of Christ's death and that hope that we carry while we await his return. It doesn't mean, again, we ignore the plight that is in our world. We don't. Christians should be very attentive. But we do so with an understanding and a faith and a conviction that there will come a day when there are no more tears and death that was the first reading today, and all its poetry was just, there's a day coming when all of those boundaries that we have with life will disappear, and that God will renew all things. And I think that everybody in this room needs to hear as we close, that that also includes you as an individual. That wherever you are in your life, and whatever is hanging on, it's causing problems, um, the renewal that the Bible speaks of is not just global and universal and cosmic, it's also very personal. And that you and I can experience that same kind of redemption and liberation in Christ. Amen.